0: For decades, Nick Bryant has been reporting from the world's hotspots for the BBC. Coming up, he explains why his passport is filled with places no tourist would dare visit.
1: I tended to go to dangerous places because often they were the most interesting places. When you're stationed overseas,
0: Christmas time can bring up a lot of emotions. I'll be home for Christmas was this promise. Reporter Jake Warga describes the surreal Christmas he spent embedded with the troops in Afghanistan and Iraq. So you can always spot a chaplain because they don't have a weapon. We'll also check in on holiday traditions in the Alps and assemble an elegant cheese course to serve your guests the way the French do at the end of a good meal.
2: Go for a goat cheese, and then I would probably um, get a soft cheese like a camembert or a brie. I would get a hard cheese like a gruyere comte. And then you might want to get a stinky cheese if for nothing more than a conversation starter.
0: (laughs) From war zones to the sublime, let's delve into the world together for the next hour. It's Travel with Rick Steves. One thing that never seems to change about the Christmas season is the attempt to maintain your cherished holiday traditions. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we hear how the U.S. military tries to provide the comforts of an American Christmas for the service men and women stationed in a war zone like Afghanistan. And we'll check in with friends in the Snowy Alps and hear how they observe the season in Switzerland and Austria. Later in the hour, we'll also have fun delving into the French tradition of serving a sampler plate of artisan cheese. Let's start out looking at the world through the lens of BBC foreign correspondent Nick Bryant. He's written a witty memoir about his decades up close with the world's breaking news. It's called Confessions from Correspondent Land. Nick, thanks for joining us. Rick, it's my pleasure. First of all, You work for the BBC. Give us a a
1: brief uh, rundown on on where you've worked as a correspondent. Well, my first foreign assignment was actually one of the most important I ever covered. It was covering the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin, a very consequential story. I was a novice at the time. It was my second day on the job at the BBC. And because it was a Saturday night, and I think because they couldn't reach anybody else, these are the days before mobile phones, Mm. uh, it was me. Uh, the novice who ended up on that plane to Jerusalem. And my first permanent assignment was actually in Washington. I was sent over to cover the Monica Lewinsky scandal involving Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky. They thought I was going to be here a few months. They said, stay in Washington until Bill Clinton is out of trouble. Well, (laughs) five years later, I'm still
0: in America. You've also been in uh, Kashmir, Afghanistan, Rwanda.
1: Yeah, I covered America until 9-11 and the years after it and the lead up to the war in Iraq. And then I decided I wanted to take a sort of look at the sharper end of the Bush administration's war on terror. So I went and based myself in South Asia. I was based in Delhi, but that was our hub bureau for covering countries like Mm -hmm. Pakistan and uh, Afghanistan. And then I met a very beautiful Australian and I ended up in Sydney because I went over there to to get married to her. And now I'm back in America. I'm the New York correspondent and the U.N. correspondent. So uh, it's the kind of bringing together two strands of my sort of foreign correspondent life, international affairs and my love of America.
0: So this book, Confessions from Correspondent Land, talks about the dangers and delights uh, of life as a foreign correspondent. So briefly, Nick, what are the dangers and what are the delights?
1: Well, the dangers are obviously going to conflict zones around the world. I mean, I've never been an adrenaline junkie. I think some of my colleagues are. They enjoy being in these dangerous situations because they get a thrill out of it. Um, I was never quite like that. I tended to go to dangerous places because often they were the most interesting places. Uh, that was especially true of Afghanistan, and certainly the places that we tried to reach on the border, say, with Waziristan and Pakistan, were very dangerous, but they are also very interesting, and that's why we went there. We weren't thrill-seekers. Mm -hmm. Uh, We were trying to find out what was happening in the difficult parts uh, Mm -hmm. of the country. Some of the delights, well, you get a front row seat on history. It's the biggest cliche in our industry, but it's true. You get to see history unfold. Um, In Afghanistan, for instance, I saw the first ever presidential election Mm -hmm. at the remarkable sight of women in their burqas lined up outside the polling stations in Kabul. You get to see things like that, and it's a great privileged position, and that is one of the delights.
0: You call Pakistan the most impenetrable country you've ever covered. How is Pakistan impenetrable?
1: Pakistan as a country tends to play a double game. When it complains, for instance, of drones' attacks in its territory by the Americans, it does so publicly. But privately, we know that often Pakistan is quite happy for America to take out some of the militant leaders in areas which its military finds hard to reach. And I was sent that across the board. It was always difficult to divine the true motivations of its leaders, its politicians, even its cricketers, its cricket team, the great national sport of Pakistan. Their cricketers are often being accused of corruption, taking Mm. bribes, not playing to win, that kind of thing. And in a way, the country's a little bit like that. You can never quite figure out precisely what's going on. And the classic case of that, of course, uh, was the killing of Osama bin Laden so close to a Pakistan military academy, Mm. which obviously raised the question, how on earth could the Pakistanis not known of the presence of bin Laden so close to a military academy and indeed so close to the capital of Islamabad.
0: Also in your book, you, you say that uh, North Ireland is, you call it a preschool for war correspondence. What is it about your time in North Ireland that let you draw that conclusion?
1: Northern Ireland, when I was growing up and when I first started at the BBC, was still a conflict zone. There hadn't been that landmark 1998 agreement, the Good Friday Agreement, which really brought peace or a, certainly a semblance of peace. that corner, that trouble corner of our country. And uh, for generations really, ever since the Troubles first erupted in the 1960s, uh, young reporters who were sort of groomed really for sort of wars overseas were often sent to Northern Ireland because there was a kind of war unfolding in our own country, in our own backyard. So I went there at a remarkable time really, this transition between the Troubles and the peace. And I covered Mm. the peace process. I was there on the night of the Good Friday agreement, I was there on the night of the referendum, mm. the vote which actually ratified the agreement. Again, an extraordinary thing to witness. For Northern Ireland, it's kind of Berlin Wall moments in a way. And there were some hairy moments too, because although the kind of bombings had stopped and a lot of the shootings had stopped, there was a lot of street violence still, a lot of rioting, where you'd be stood in what you thought was a puddle of water and suddenly your shoes would start melting and you realise actually you're in sulfuric acid, which uh. had been thrown in bottles at the security forces.
0: Nick, when we, when we think about struggles in hot areas around the, the planet where there is just, uh, you know, strife that seems to be impossible to overcome, we can think of Northern Ireland as a real success story. Is that grounds for hope in, in other areas?
1: I sense the dynamic there was that people had just got fed up of fighting and people had realized that hmm. the kind of paramilitary war that was going on there was kind of unwinnable and wasn't really going to change any sort of strategic dynamic And so the leadership of the IRA at the time, the Republican militant movement uh, was starting to see the potential of uh, the ballot box and things like that. And Mm. I think after almost 30 years of conflict, I mean, people were just fed up and and wanted to try something else. And this political solution came along. And America was a key part of that.
0: Well, Ireland's ability to do that with some help from friendly nations is certainly, I think, gives us hope for, for other persistently troubled corners of the world. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Nick Bryant, who's written a book, Confessions from Correspondent Land, The Dangers and Delights of Life as a Foreign Correspondent. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Nicole's on the line in Dallas, Texas. Nicole, thanks for your call.
2: Hi there. Um, I'm assuming that you are familiar with Chris Hedge's book uh, from about 10 years ago about his experiences a war correspondent, And I know that in that book, he compared war to a sort of narcotic addiction that journalists can can succumb to. And I was wondering mm. if you had any experiences where you felt that, that pull or whether you were around other journalists who you thought were maybe behaving in ways that might be a little bit too risky for a sensible person.
1: Yeah, I think foreign correspondents often get mischaracterized in a way as adrenaline junkies and thrill-seekers and that we go to these far-flung and dangerous corners of the world to sort of satisfy this kind of desire, as you say, to experience war as a kind of drug. Uh, I've known colleagues like that. Um, Often they're quite damaged people and I've been in their midst, but I'd say the overwhelming majority go motivated by a totally different uh, sort of approach, which is to go there to find out things, to find out information. And often, as I say, the most interesting parts of the world are the most dangerous and, and because of that uh, you feel the need to go, go to them. But when I was in really dangerous situations and I did think my life was in danger and I've been in firefights and things like that, what what struck me was the lack of sensation in a way. It was You were sort of so overwhelmed by emotions and experiences and fear that you felt almost a numbness and it's only afterwards that you kind of decompress and you you sort of uh, sort out what you've been feeling. So, uh,
0: Nicole is referring to Chris Hedges. In in an interview, he said, I think war is a drug and maybe the supreme drug of human existence. You've been there on the front uh, reporting all of this. What do you think about just our inability to to get beyond war?
1: I've never regarded it as a drug, and I think that's a dangerous sort of approach, and I think that's a kind of dangerous thing to say in a way, because... Mm -hmm. You you start attracting people into the business who um, uh, are motivated for the wrong reasons, as I say, people who want to experience that drug mm-hmm. rather than go there to figure out what it is about the Middle East that's not working, what it is about Afghanistan that's given it such a troubled past, what it is about the Congo that makes it such a troubled country. Uh, it should be an intellectual and a journalistic mm-hmm. lure that takes you to these countries, not a desire to experience right. the thrill. And, uh, hmm. yeah, I mean, I know people who do that, but I think mm-hmm. the overwhelming majority of foreign correspondents <laughs> are actually quite staid and quite sensible people, really, and, 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 and in many ways quite risk-averse. I mean, we, we obviously want to report future stories, so uh, we're very careful in many instances where we go and, and what we do and who we speak to. Nicole,
0: thanks for your call. Thanks. Bye-bye.
1: Nick, you've worked for years as a BBC
0: correspondent. What does the BBC pride itself in?
1: I think it's our impartiality. I think it's our reach. I think it's the fact that we've got a footprint in so many countries around the world, and there is a depth of knowledge and a depth of expertise throughout the organization uh, that we can call on, and also a local network. I mean, in Afghanistan, for instance... It's not just a correspondent in Kabul. It's a producer in Kabul who's lived the conflict. It's a network of local correspondents who speak the local languages and dialects who can tell us precisely what's going on. I mean, I've been a Washington correspondent. My academic background is in in American politics. I've got a PhD in American politics. So the BBC does attract people who have a kind of deep-rooted commitment to covering the stories and, and hopefully an expertise and level of experience that they can bring to their reporting
0: as a journalist, as a correspondent, what's your take on the the, uh, impact of the quality of the news that shapes Americans' view of the world, because it is commercial news from commercial news services?
1: What worries me, I guess, about the media landscape in in America is that CNN has been squeezed in recent times by MSNBC and Fox. And it's partly because they have gone for this kind of impartiality, and they don't tend to take a view on the On the news of the day, uh, Fox and MSNBC obviously rely on a lot more commentary, and that worries me. I mean, um, and in terms of the networks as well, I mean, you've seen their footprint around the world be vastly reduced from what it was when I first started out 20 years ago as a journalist. Um, You used to run into a lot of American correspondents who are actually based in countries. Now you tend to run into American correspondents who have just flown in. Many of them are experts. Many of them have fantastic expertise, but it's different when you fly in and when you are based permanently. so But, I mean, these things are happening in Britain as well. I mean, there are obviously commercial demands. A lot of the stories that get on websites these days are sort of clickbait. You're trying to rev up your sort of readership online.
0: This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Nick Bryant. His book is Confessions from Correspondent Land, The Dangers and Delights of Life as a Foreign Correspondent. Nick, thanks so much, and good luck with your work.
1: Rick, thank you very much. It's been a pleasure
0: reporter Jake Warga tells us what Christmas is like embedded with the troops in Afghanistan. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. The European Union received the 2012 Nobel Peace Prize for promoting peace, human rights, and democracy. Information available at euintheus.org. With Christmas approaching, it can be a challenge to enjoy the holiday season, especially if you or a loved one are serving in a war zone. To find out what it's like, public radio reporter Jake Warga has spent the holidays recording images and sound with American soldiers in both Iraq and Afghanistan. We'll air a more extensive interview about Jake's work with enlistees in the new year. Right now, let's hear what it's like to spend Christmas with the troops.
3: Merry Christmas, Rick. There's two schools of thought in a war zone about Christmas. You either embrace it fully or you ignore it completely. Those are the coping strategies that a lot of soldiers have. Those who try to ignore it, it's called December 25th. That's it. It's not called Christmas. It's not. But I was embedded with chaplains for the holidays. I said, Look, I want to spend time with the chaplain. I want to see how they deal with being in a war zone. And Mm -hmm. these are military chaplains.
0: Because our government provides chaplains because these are tough times. People are looking right in the face of death. And certain people that didn't fancy themselves as religious probably are religious when they're in battle.
3: Yeah. And the, the chaplains, them and reporters, are the only people who do not carry weapons. Right. So you can always spot a chaplain because they don't have a weapon. So there's a service.
0: There would be a mass or a service. Is there a Christmas banquet?
3: Depending on the size of the base, there can be amazing things going on. The food is incredible. Just because you're in a foreign country, I never really had the feeling that I was. I was in the United States inside of Afghanistan or inside of Iraq.
0: That's the notion I get, is there's great energy put into creating a a comfortable home base. And that is, in a true sense of the word, a home base. And, of course, they'll go into danger, but... Within that base, it's a Little America.
3: Right. It's a strange little portal to the comfort foods that we're used to. So
0: Christmas would be all the trappings.
3: All the trappings. Um, All the trimmings. It's one of the few places you can find bacon and pork products in the Middle East. Ah, Lots of them. Lots of it. Yeah. And, And who decorates? Well, Christmas decorations are put up by the DFAC, which is the dining facility, a.k.a. the chow hall. But they're staffed by private contractors. And often a lot of those come from countries that do not celebrate Christmas. So the decorations that come out, I wonder how they see Christmas, because there'll be these enormous sort of dioramas of Santa Claus and Jesus and all these things that really don't go together. And I wonder if they think Christmas is a form of a discotheque, because the lights are kind of blinky everywhere and there's a disco So it's like Bollywood, all these blinking lights. It's like a salad bar of culture (laughs) here going on. The so disco you got, ball a, for Christmas. What a mix!
0: You got some people who crank up the Christmas, other people shut it down entirely, and you got people from other cultures doing the decoration, and you got over-the-top food to make uh, everything go smoothly.
3: Yeah, you can definitely eat yourself to a comfort level that I haven't had for years. The Sunday bars, the dessert bars, the the turkey, the the Coca Cola seasoning birds. I don't know what was going on, but luckily everything was labeled, including a warning if there was pork products inside for any of the nationals. I happen to be eating and wondering, what is happening here? Is it effective? Is it a happy time for the troops? It really depends on the person. Or is it a
0: sad time because you're so far away from your loved ones?
3: For some of the troops, it's a very sad moment because they have family back home that they're missing. They have children back home. Mm. The USO sets up places where you can Skype back home. I
0: bet the Skype corners are just jam-packed.
3: There's often a queue to sit and talk with your family.
0: Now, Jake, you have done Christmas in Iraq and Afghanistan. Given the fact that we just create a little America within each battle zone, is it essentially the same experience?
3: Well, it's sort of a Christmas with a real camping flavor to it where the last chapel I was in was actually a tent up in Afghanistan, a very small base. And the chaplain there gave his sermon, and it was it was very sad. In a midnight service, so Christmas Eve, which is celebrated at the local time, they do a Christmas Eve service because they're going to experience Christmas Eve first, before the United States. Oh, right. Yeah, for, because of the time zone so... difference. So it, how was it sad? Well, it was Lutheran, and it always felt like a funeral instead of a birthday party. Come on. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> so they did a Lutheran service, really? Uh, well, every chaplain comes from a different okay, background. Okay, so this happened to be a Lutheran this chaplain. This happened to be a Lutheran. Okay. A lot, and the soldiers, a lot of them, this was kind of fun. They broke out into a giggle fits, which they're 18. They're 19 years old. And some of the, their voices cracked trying to sing these very slow Lutheran-esque Lutheran songs, hymns, Christmas hymns. Yes, yeah. yeah. And so they started a whole giggle fits. And I do they have a keyboard? Is it electric keyboard? Do they have a piano?
0: How do they make the music? From their hearts. In so other it's words, really no. <laughs> there's no piano, no, no keyboard,
3: no electric keyboard. No, but when I was in Iraq for Christmas, I was at a major base, and they had the army band which was going around on separate... The army band the, for the Christmas They had their own service. helicopters, and they're going around to as many bases as possible and performing the classics, like Bing Crosby's Bing Crosby I'll Crosby Be Would Home be, for yeah, Christmas. Yeah, I bet that's a big deal. I kept Santa looking Claus around. jump out, too? Yes, actually.
0: So you got Santa Claus in the helicopter and the army band dropping yes, in.
3: Yes, and I was thinking the connections back to World War II. This was all about we didn't expect to be abroad in Europe serving during World War II, so I'll be home for Christmas was this promise at one point i was at a base walking around and i came across a soldier dressed as santa claus just sitting there next to one of these big container units and he had this giant shotgun and i recorded him i said what are you doing <laughs> what an image yeah it was a very well-armed santa claus and i saw another one in afghanistan and i i love seeing santa claus mm. with a sidearm mm. I mean, that, that is that's Christmas. That's that is, is
0: from... That's Christmas in a crazy world. Mm-hmm.
3: Jake Warga, thanks so
0: much. I, I think we can all uh, be thankful for the, the work and the commitment our troops are doing now and how tough it must be to be so far away from their families and their loved ones. And uh, I'm just glad they get some kind of Christmas if they choose to celebrate it. Happy holidays. Thank you. There's more online from Jake Warga's overseas documentary work in the archives of hearingvoices.com. Some of my favorite places to enjoy a real traditional Christmas would have to be in the Alps of Switzerland and Austria. We'll hear how nature is an important part of the holiday customs in the Tyrol region in just a moment. First, online with us from the tiny traffic-free village of Gimmelwald, high in the Swiss Alps, is my friend Oli Egeman. Ollie's the local school teacher, and he and his wife run a B&B in the village. Ollie, thanks for being with us.
4: Yes. Fun to speak to you, Rick.
0: Tell me about uh, what's distinct about Christmas in a little village high in the Swiss Alps.
4: The first thing, obviously, that makes Christmas a great thing is the snow is usually approaching. We get snow around Christmas time, a little bit earlier. Days are shortened. Everybody's looking forward to family festivities. In early December, we get the first feeling from Claus from our Santa Claus.
0: D- describe Sa- Sammy Claus. He's like the Santa Claus, but he's different. What does he do?
4: This Sammy Claus is a very important person, and he is visiting all the children the 6th of December. The Sammy Claus is dressed up in red. He has a helper. His helper is Schmutzli, and he comes dressed up in black clothes. Uh, both usually have a long beard. They have a, a donkey or a little horse, and on the back of the animal you have, you have usually a huge bag full of peanuts, tangerines, sometimes even some chocolate. And this uh, Sammy uh goes to visit the different children in the village.
0: They must be frightened when they see him.
4: Well, uh, you know he is he is he is quite a man, and usually he has a huge book in one hand, and Schmutzli comes with a kind of uh, a broom. To Samichlaus, you know, he is a holy person, and obviously birds can speak to him, and sometimes birds tell him about his children if they have committed some stupid things, and obviously he will give them a little lesson, and he has all written down. And quite often when he visits the children, he might give them a little lecture, what they should maybe do better. And he will look up in his huge book. And to make look this book really old, quite often you just put some flour in it. When you open it, it's it's all dusty. And then usually children either sing a song for the Samichlaus or they tell a poem. And if they do so afterwards, they get something from the Samichlaus they can usually open the, the back and get out some tangerines or or nuts.
0: It's just another way for parents to terrorize their children into being nice and not naughty.
4: Yes, you can say that, and you know, funny enough, even when you're an adult, if even if you go to a home of retired people and somebody comes dressed up as a samichlaus, I will tell you one thing: everybody gets somehow excited and. To a certain strange way feels back in the time when he was a child, and everybody has a lot of fun with it. And, you know, the time when a child is really scared of a Samichlaus is usually a very short one, let's say between 3 and 5. And quite often when 6 or 7, they all, all of a sudden can understand that it's somebody they probably know. And then it obviously gets even more fun than before because they... They halfway take him serious, halfway they believe it's somebody else.
0: So you mentioned December 6th. I, I don't understand. Samichlaus comes on December 6th or on the 25th?
4: No, he comes the 6th of December.
0: Oh, he does. So he's he different. He
4: comes on the 6th, not on the 25th or 24th.
0: Now, why on the 6th? What's that special day?
4: In the church, all the saints have their particular day. And the day of the Samichlaus is the 6th of December.
0: Is that Saint Nicholas? Yeah. Ah, so, so Saint Nicholas day day. is coming. Now, Ollie, in in uh, Switzerland, how do you say Merry Christmas? Schöne Weihnachten. Schöne Weihnachten. Schöne Weihnachten. A beautiful Christmas night. Is that what that means? Well, yes, Literally?
4: more or less. Yes. Yeah,
0: great. Well, schöne Weihnachten to you and your family. Thanks for joining us this Christmas, Oli. Thank
4: you very much. Schöne Weihnachten for you too, Rick. Okay. <laughs> bye bye. Bye bye.
0: Now we travel to the Tyrol. That is the traditional western part of Austria. And we're talking with a friend of mine named Gabi Koch, who is in a town called Reuter. Gabi, thanks for joining us.
5: Thank you, Rick. Hello. Hello.
0: We have a lot of uh, romantic images of the Tyrol, or I guess you say Tyrol in German. Tirol. Can you just describe to people what a small town Christmas would be like in your part of Europe?
5: Christmas is a very traditional fest here. As you know, we are Roman Catholic. So it starts already with the Advent side. So we get prepared for the birth of Jesus. A lot of handcrafts are done then, Christmas decoration. We do a lot of music with traditional instruments like guitar, sitter, harp, harkspread, flute.
0: You know, for the United States, for a lot of people, it's like how many shopping days left till Christmas. But in I think in the t there's a lot of sacred days around the Christmas season. You have St. Nicholas Day.
5: We have St. Nicholas Day, which is not Santa Claus uh, like I think you celebrate in your country. Uh, St. Nikolaus, or Nikolaus, how we call him short, is uh, named after a bishop who helped uh, hungry people, and he have especially helped kids. So it's very custom to uh, Nicholas to bring children fruits, nuts, and sweet things. As well, it's a good occasion for the parents to remind their kids uh, through Nicholas to behave themselves, like to do proper homework, or to go bed earlier. And in this worst case, there is uh, as well a Krampus. He looks uh, very ugly and very scary, so uh, better people do what the Saint Nicholas is telling them.
0: Gabby, you said the people are during the Advent season as Christmas approaches. Uh, they prepare with handicrafts and decorating. How are the houses decorated in your town?
5: Uh, Mainly with nature things like trees, nuts, apples, so not very uh, artificial things.
0: Now, in the United States, we decorate our tree several weeks, uh, usually before Christmas. When do you get your tree and when do you decorate it and how does that um, involve the children?
5: In very few houses, we have artificial trees. Usually, we have uh, natural trees. And sometimes we pick them very, very short time ahead. So even on the Christmas uh, day, we go to the forest and pick them.
0: Now, for small children, isn't there a, a tradition where they don't see the tree until actually Christmas Eve? How does that work?
5: Exactly. So uh, the papas, they need to keep the smaller children busy. Like they go out, they do skiing or skating or snowmen or playing games, whatever. And then the mama prepares the tree and the presents, and the living room is closed, and they will come at about 5 to 6 o'clock p.m. The Christmas bell rings, and everybody may enter then the living room. Of course, this is done with the smaller kids. When they are a little bit older, they join uh, decorating the Christmas tree.
0: Okay, now who actually, in the children's mind, who brings the presents? Christkind. Christkind. Yeah,
5: Christkind. So that Christkind.
0: is the Christ child, literally, brings exactly. the presents.
5: Crispin is the birth of God, it's Jesus. And so we never have had any Weihnachtsmann, Santa Claus. This is not uh, something from our religion. Weihnachtsmann is uh, actually a newer expression. Um, I think... um, Our
0: equivalent would be Santa Claus? Yes, but
5: I think it's mainly used for business reasons.
0: So even the little children, they think that Jesus is bringing the presents to them and putting them under the tree?
5: Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Now describe for me Gabby in the Tirol in Western Austria uh, how you deal with the big family meal and when you go to mass and how the mass
5: and the family all comes together. Usually the meal on the 24th is quite simple because there are a lot of preparations to make it really up to the to the event to the birth of Jesus. The meal is quite uh, simple like a sausage and a potato salad or a fish, but not very fancy and the service where we go to is at midnight, we call it the Christmette, and it will start at uh, 11.30 with already Christmas songs in the church, and then the main service, which is very familiar, but uh, as well festive, starting at midnight. Afterwards, everybody wishes uh, Frohe Weihnachten uh, in front of the church, which is a very nice custom, especially when it's snowing, so it's like in a fairy tale.
0: So after the Mass, everybody is uh, socializing in front of the church, wishing each other Merry Christmas, Mm Frohe Weihnachten.
5: Yeah, and then we go to the illuminated cemetery.
0: What kind of lights and why?
5: Oh, this is to give the wishes and the uh, Merry uh, Frohe Weihnachten to the dead people as well.
0: So there's candles in your graveyards?
5: Candles, yes, a lot of candles. After the Christmas bell rang, you go to the uh, living room, Then uh, you have some Christmas songs. Then you have the Evangelium. This is the history of the birth of uh, Jesus.
0: Mm -hmm. So you read the Gospel.
5: You read the Evangelium. Afterwards, you have uh, again some uh, Christmas songs. Then you give the Christmas wishings, And then a very exciting point, you can open the presents.
0: Wow. And do you have then a big Christmas feast uh, on Christmas Day?
5: On the 25th. Sometimes you start with a very long breakfast because you come back quite late from the church. Then you go to the sons and daughters or they come to the house and then uh, probably have early evening meal or a later evening meal. But the whole day will be uh, time to spend and to see the family and, and join each other.
0: Gabby, can you uh, share with us in the United States what your wishes are for the new
5: year? I wish first peace for everybody. Frohe Weihnachten. And then, of course, everybody wants to be healthy, join family, and uh, be happy, and, of course, have all the blessings of God.
0: That's beautiful. And once again, in, uh, in your language, how do you say Merry Christmas?
5: Frohe Weihnachten.
0: Frohe Weihnachten. Thank you very much, Gabby, and Merry Thank Christmas. You
5: from Austria. Rick, to you and to everybody.
0: Bye now. Bye-bye. We'll feature more international Christmas traditions on the show next week. And you can scan our archives in the radio section of ricksteves.com to hear even more. When you say cheese in France, you might get offered the chance to sample dozens of different varieties, each the pride of local artisans. They are experts at turning the milk of cows, sheep, and goats into a sensory adventure. Stay with us as we sample a classic French cheese course next on Travel with Rick Steves. One of the delights of French culture is enjoying the many types of cheese that can accompany dinner, not as an appetizer, but served on a sampler plate after the main course or as dessert. Wisconsin native Kathy Lyson loves cheese. She's written The Whole Fromage to teach us about the impressive variety of traditional cheeses in France. I've got a sampler plate of artisan cheese and crackers in front of me, and Kathy joins us to assemble a typical cheese course that can bring a taste of France to your own table. Kathy, bonjour.
2: Thanks for having me, Rick.
0: Kathy, do you know this feeling when you go into a restaurant and you find a nice meal, and then you get this incredible, usually a woven or some kind of a nice organic sort of dish and it's got this amazing variety of cheese, and it's laid out right in front of you by a beautiful local person who explains each one to you. And it's just like, oh, baby, this is the climax of the meal.
2: Yes, absolutely.
0: What is it like? I mean, the, the colors, the, the fragrance, the elegance and the love that each cheese is described to you. Tell us about that.
2: Yeah, I think that's one of the really wonderful things about France is, uh, you know, when you go into a French restaurant and you've, as you said, you've completed that meal and they bring out this wonderful cheese tray, you know, they'll, they'll sometimes tempt you with 20 or 30 different cheeses and then they'll have you select three or four um, and it's wonderful.
0: Yeah, and it's it's an excuse for more wine, beautiful is, red wine. Yes. It's an excuse mm-hmm. for beautiful bread. It's an excuse to talk to the waiter or the waitress who just, acts like cheese is sort of the definition of good living.
2: (laughs) Yes. It's the soul of the soil as they call it in French.
0: I I love the way they have these, you know, the the French will say cheese is milk's leap toward immortality. I mean, whoa. Uh, And of course, I'm always talking about my friend in Paris that says, oh, it smells like the feet of angels. These Parisians, it's like they're evangelical (laughs) about cheese. And when you travel in France, I think it's a shame to miss the opportunity.
2: It is. It absolutely is.
0: How can we get the most out of our cheese experience when we go to France?
2: Well, I think it's helpful to know at least a little bit about tasting. I, myself, I tend to not be a super meticulous taster. The French take it very, very seriously, or at least they can. Um, And I think that that can be fun. And I think it's also fun to just eat the cheese and enjoy it. So however you want to approach it is fine. Although again, it, it can be a good time to have at least a little bit of vocabulary and a little and a little bit of knowledge about how to approach
0: it. Okay, well let's let's just take this exemplar because I got to admit I am so excited. We, uh, with your advice, we have bought some cheese, and I've got in front of me so oh, five or six beautiful pieces of cheese here with crackers, and they've each got a name on them. And we've got camembert, we've got Compta, we've got fromedonber, we've got Bouche andre, and we've got préféré du fromy. Now, I don't know what those names all mean except for camembert, but first of all. Help me organize this. When you're having a cheese course, what do you start with? Is there a, a proper order for all of this?
2: Yeah, there, there definitely is. And the French are very clear that there's a proper order.
0: <laughs> Which would I start with? Because I want to bite, first of all, while you're talking. What, yeah. what would the first one be?
2: The first one that I would start with, uh, you always want to go from mildest to strongest. Okay. And typically, the goat cheese is always going to be the mildest on your plate. So I would start with the bouche cendre.
0: Bouche cendrée. Now, this has, um, no, just a minute, just put a little on here. And it's got, hang on. <laughs> Oh, that is that went, that's creamy, it's smooth, and it's it's got this layer of ash. I mean it looks like somebody dropped it in a fireplace on the edge of it. Right. What's with that?
2: Yeah, well back in the good old days, they actually used to take ash from the bottom of the kettle that they had over the fire and they would put that over the cheese basically to keep the flies off. Huh. Um
0: But yeah. I'm eating it now. now, is it is it good to eat?
2: It is good to eat. It's absolutely good to eat. It's one of those coatings that can kind of scare Americans. It, you know, we're not used to seeing blackish-looking cheeses, but mm-hmm. it's perfectly harmless. Um, these days it's sterile and factory-produced vegetable ash. So, oh, so it's um, like
0: it's made to order for this purpose here. They didn't roll it around ab- in a fireplace.
2: Yes, absolutely. No, they did not. Mm.
0: Now, this is a goat cheese, so you start with a goat cheese.
2: Yes. Start no, with the goat cheese, and the, the bouche in the in the name means log, and then cendre means cindered. So it's a cindered log, and it's oh, from the Loire Valley. It's, it,
0: it could look like a cinder. Now, there's different regions, so the Loire Valley, would be would it be known for goat cheese?
2: It is, in fact, known for goat cheese, yes. Okay. And there's a very famous cheese there called sainte maur de Touraine, and that's what your cheese is based off. You don't have that exact cheese in front of you because the sainte maur de Touraine is AOC-protected. It's um, got an appellation d'origine controlée or an AOC distinction so it's name controlled and they can't export it.
0: Ah, so it's the same thing but it's just from a different region and legally they can't call it that like champagne or something.
2: That's right, exactly.
0: Okay. You know, we have this ash covering here and a lot of Americans are a little like not very confident about do I eat the skin or not, you know, because exactly. it looks yeah. a lot of times it looks like you wouldn't eat it but you do. How do you, what's your right. rule of thumb there for rookies when it comes to French cheese? When do I eat <laughs> the skin?
2: So my rule of thumb is if it looks edible, go ahead and eat it. (laughs) And if it doesn't, don't. Although Hmm. although that can be a little bit deceiving because the ash, you know, at first glance, you would look at that and think, no. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking... Another good rule of thumb is if it's a softer cheese, um, you can eat the rind often. If it's a harder cheese, it tends to be like a protective coating and they'll get shipped in that and sort of handled in in that rind and you don't really want to eat that rind. This is
0: basically the the skin of a bunch of mold, right?
2: It is, yeah. All
0: right. Hey, now, we're doing this cheese course and I just did my goat cheese with the ash uh, covering from the Loire called uh, the cinder uh, log, bouche Mm -hmm. Sandre. What would the next Mm -hmm. cheese be on on my course?
2: So next I would probably go to the camembert.
0: Camembert. Okay, Um, now we know what that looks mm -hmm. like. It's got a typical round, hockey puck kind of look, I guess.
2: That's right, yeah.
0: Okay, now I'm going to dig into that while you're talking, but tell us about camembert. Now, I can eat the skin on this one, obviously.
2: You can, yes. you absolutely. And in fact, you absolutely should. It's kind of a waste to go ahead and scrape those rinds off the soft cheeses. Um, You
0: lose half the cheese, for one thing.
2: That's right. (laughs) Mm. It's a difficult task and it's completely unnecessary. So the one that you have there, um, the French one you have is called le pommier, which Mm -hmm. means the apple tree. And it's comes from the calves of Hervé who is this famous French cheesemonger, um, and his calves are outside of Lyon.
0: Caves. You're not talking uh, cow, little baby cows. You're talking caves.
2: Caves. Or... I'm sorry. Yes, caves. caves.
0: All right. So this is yes. ma- made in a cave?
2: It's aged in a cave. So what people like Hervé do, he's called it, what's called an affineur in French or a cheese mm-hmm. ager. Mm-hmm. Um, and he doesn't actually make cheese himself. He goes out and he finds makers who make really good cheeses, and then he takes them back and ages them to perfection in his calves.
0: I'm talking with Kathy Lyson, and she's written a book called The Whole Fromage, and it's talking about the passion French people have for cheese. Kathy, when I'm thinking about eating this camembert right now, it's getting a little more stinky, a little more exotic, a a little stronger. I want to take it one step further. I I see we're progressing now, aren't we, from a relatively mild, smooth goat into the camembert. What would be next?
2: We are. um, So the next cheese that I would suggest is the Comté, which is a hard cheese ah. um, made in the Jura Mountains.
0: Now, the Jura are near Switzerland.
2: That's right. Uh huh. Okay. And in fact, it's what's known as a Gruyere. People, of course, are familiar with Gruyere big G. Oh, this is type like,
0: it's like Swiss cheese without the holes.
2: Sort of, yeah. Mm. <laughs> so what we think of as Swiss cheese here in the U.S. is, you know, the Gruyere with the big G. But yeah. Gruyere is actually a type of cheese in the way that cheddar is a type of cheese. So um, the Comte is a, is a type of Gruyere and just means mm. that it's a, it's a, cheese that's been cooked and then pressed during its making process. Now,
0: would this be more of an Alpine cheese?
2: It's from the Jura, so it's not Alpine, but there's a wonderful Gruyere that the Alps are known for that's called Beaufort, which is a okay. very similar cheese. And mm-hmm.
0: that's because I, I know when you go into the Swiss Alps, they say, ah, Alpquesa. And then you can get young and old. And the older it gets, the the sharper it gets until it's an amazing Yeah, strength.
2: yeah, and the one you have there is um, has been aged about sixteen months, I do believe, mm-hmm. um, and probably has some like nice nutty and caramelized onion undertones. Well,
0: let me just hang hang on a sec here. Nutty, caramelized. Yeah, I'm not sure about nutty, but I can tell the caramelized, and that's mm-hmm. that. Yeah. I wouldn't have I wouldn't have noticed that had you not explained for me to to look at that.
2: The other thing you might be encountering mm. are little um, crunchy cheese crystals in there. Are you getting any?
0: Let me just tyrosine
2: see. clusters.
0: Hmm. Well, yeah, much more in this than in the goat cheese we tried or the camembert. I can see that.
2: Yeah, they wouldn't occur in those cheeses, but there's um they're called tyrosine clusters and they're clusters of amino acids and they almost taste a little bit like cheese candy and you get them in in the really well aged um, hard cheeses are one of my favorite things about cheese.
0: So we're talking Comte there, and that's near the Swiss part mm-hmm. of France. And great thing that's about right. France is it's surrounded by you know Germany, Spain, Italy, and Switzerland, and it's. A, mesh of different cultures and I suppose that yes. that shows through in the cheese making traditions when you think about traditional cheese making I think of a little hut high in the Alps or a cave like we were talking about I guess in Normandy where the Camembert was and people will come in there and lovingly brush the cheese and flip it over and age it talk for a moment about aging cheese in the traditional French way
2: Yeah, they do. And uh, and Comté is actually a really interesting cheese when it comes to aging, because the way that cheese developed in Comté, was very communal. Um, They would make cheeses together in the village. They would make this big cheese. And then as time went on, they started aging it communally as well. And so one of the places I visited was called Saint Antoine. It's the Marcel Petit fromageries in the Jura. And it's this underground fort that they've converted into a cheese aging facility, and they have a hundred thousand rounds of Comte just in this one facility. A
0: hundred thousand um, rounds of Comte? Yes. Oh, and, yes. and this it's, stuff is so good. A hundred thousand rounds of it? Yes. That's an industry.
2: <laughs> exactly, and it's it's a fabulous thing to see. You can tour the facility, and they do what's this is a bit surprising to people sometimes, but because they have so many rounds now, it's really impossible to go on flipping, all those all those rounds need to be flipped and brushed, as you were just saying, mm-hmm. um, often several times a day, depending on where they are in their aging process. And so they use robotics, um, mm. these robotic machines to do that. And you'll see them as you touring it. They, they go up and down the aisles and they've got this kind of hydraulic whooshing sound going on as they flip the cheeses.
0: Okay, enough technology. I'm hungry. We want to go to the next <laughs> part of our cheese course here. How Where would we progress from the, the compost? Okay,
2: it's kind of a toss-up. The two you have there, one is called a préféré de fromy, which is the, a name that I'm assuming the cheesemaker has invented. It's it's really like a Roquefort, which is a well-known cheese from the Alps.
0: Well, this is just a classic um, stinky cheese. It's already sort of melting on my plate here and it's easy that's to spread. Right,
2: yeah. yeah, yeah. It's probably got kind of an orangey hue to the rind. Yeah, and um, it, and, yeah. and
0: and the creamy inside. It's sort of like the melted butter of beautiful cheese. It seems like, or some kind of a. I'm gonna just try it here. It,
2: it, I was gonna say it sounds like you're you're edging towards that one. So let's go with that one first.
0: Mm. Okay, that's a that's a stronger flavor. How does it get? It, why does this have a stronger flavor than some of the others?
2: Yes, yeah, so it's a washed rind cheese. And what they do is during the aging process, they wipe the surface of it down with, um, it it can be various things depending upon the cheese. It's usually some type of a mix of water and and maybe bits of old cheese. It makes kind of this bacterial stew or sometimes they'll put a bit of alcohol in there. And it encourages a type of bacteria called Bravobacterium, excuse me, Linens, to grow. And that is the same bacteria that makes your feet stink and your armpits smell. It's, um, <laughs> I thought I <laughs> same... smelled a
0: little bit of yes. foot in there, yeah. And that's right. because they've stimulated the bacteria to just do its thing with a little more vigor.
2: That is right, yeah. So exactly. they've really done
0: this intentionally. and for And for a person that doesn't like stinky cheese, well, you want to stay away from this. But I would think the mark of a good cheese taster is somebody who gets off on this. Excuse me a minute. <laughs>
2: It it yes it absolutely is and in fact if a French person asks mm. you what type of cheese you like you should definitely pick a washed rind cheese because they'll be most oh that's a good you. tip a
0: washed yes. rind yes yes to okay.
2: so say a poise or something along those lines that's mm. that's a, it's readily available in the U S
0: now we've we've gone through the whole gamut but there's one more cheese facing me here and I understand you finished with the blue cheese is that right.
2: Yes, typically. Um this one is a milder blue cheese, which is why I was saying that uh, you know it's a mm-hmm. bit was a bit of a toss up between this one and the last okay. one you tasted. So if, if it were a roquefort, I would I would always end with the roquefort. Roquefort is, tends to be pretty strong. Okay. Um, so we this went is with roquefort d-
0: light kinda, of. it's the form d'Aubert. It,
2: it is, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's from the Massif Chantral, it's from the Au- Auvergne region. Um
0: You got this great it's got the the green or the blue moldy bits in it and at a glance you go "Oh, that's going to be very, very, very tasty like blue cheese and Roquefort.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And is it tasting milder to you than a Roquefort would you say? or?
0: Yeah, it's, it's not as sharp as a Roquefort but it has, right. clearly it's in that family.
2: Yeah. Yeah, we went with that one because lots of people tend, when they hear blue cheese, you know French blue cheese, mm-hmm. they think automatically think Roquefort but there's actually quite a number of different blue cheeses in France so we kind of wanted
0: to explore. And for a lot of people, a little of that probably goes a long way.
2: I love blue cheese. I mm. could sit around eating blue cheese all day, but mm. yeah, some people, um, they're, you know, just a little bit is enough.
0: Kathy, I would imagine sometimes you can actually get too strong of a cheese. Have you ever encountered a cheese that you just thought, whoa, not for human consumption?
2: Yeah, I did, unfortunately, have that experience. I was in Corsica, and I had a cheese uh, they make, and it was, in fact, a washed rind cheese. I won't name it for fear of embarrassing the poor Corsicans who, who do make marvelous cheeses, but this particular cheese was really, really strong, and I unwrapped it, and it, it smelled like dead feet, and it kind of tasted that way, too. Mm. So, I, I yeah, I, I chucked that one.
0: And that wasn't necessarily a, a bad piece of cheese. It was a piece of cheese that just didn't fit your idea of what you wanted to eat. Is that right? Or, or was yeah. it? would it be just a bad piece of cheese?
2: No, I think, it, I mean, I think that was how it was meant to be. It just mm-hmm. was, it was a little too much for me. The other thing that I've had in France that I've found a little bit too much for me, and people don't realize this, but you can actually dry goat cheese. They make hard goat cheeses in France. They make hard goat cheeses in this country now as well, but you can mm-hmm. let them get really, really old. And I had one of those once, and it, it tasted, it, texture-wise, it was kind of like a Parmesan, but it tasted very, very strong. And I, mm-hmm. I found it to not be to my liking.
0: And with the wine... Now, how do, you, do, do you think much about pairing this with wine, or do you bring out a special wine? or how do you, If you want to get the most out of this cheese course, how would you gild the lily here? Yeah.
2: <laughs> Usually the standard advice is to pair with a wine that comes from the region. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the Comte you were tasting earlier, mm-hmm. um, you would go with a white Durasian mm-hmm. wine mm-hmm. with that. It varies, though, from region to region because the Camembert, for example, actually the traditional pairing isn't wine but hard cider. Which tastes really fabulous with camembert. Hard cider. Um, and then, well, that would yeah, make sense because that's the Normandy thing. Mm-hmm. You got
0: cider and you got your exactly. camembert. Exactly.
2: That is exactly correct, yes.
0: Well, I would say, out of all of this, you know, I'm a sucker for blue cheese, but I think the um, Prefere de me that's the, the washed cheese. What do you call that?
2: Really? The stinky rind one? The stinky one. rind, I'm rind one. I,
0: I like that. We've done the whole gamut here. And when we're traveling anywhere in France, when you look at the menu in, in a nicer restaurant or a traditional restaurant, You'll have that option, even on some fixed-price menus where you get three courses. You can replace the dessert with a cheese course, Mm -hmm. and um, it's a beautiful thing that travelers should uh, adventure into, wouldn't you say?
2: Yes, I absolutely agree. If it's something that you tend to steer away from because you're a little bit intimidated by the French cheese, Mm -hmm. I would say don't be. The great thing about cheese is you just just have to eat, you know, you just stick it in your mouth. It's really not, it shouldn't Mm. be that intimidating.
0: Little bits with a little sip of wine, and then also you'll get some honey and some pears and some nuts on it in a nice restaurant. Yes. It's one of those opportunities, to. It's the great equalizer. It doesn't matter how you're dressed. It doesn't matter how much money you've got. If you sit down in front of a great cheese course in a nice Parisian restaurant or French restaurant, it's hard to get much happier than that.
2: Mm-hmm. The French will tell you that, you know, I said earlier, they call it the soul of the soil, and it's, they really feel like it's the essence of the French countryside. It's a way to get a little bit of that, even if you are someplace like Paris.
0: I like that, to get the essence of the countryside. Mm -hmm. Just as France is the most uh, diverse country in a lot of ways you'll find in Europe, it's got a huge diversity of cheese. What are there, 600 different varieties of cheese or something like that? Everywhere you go in France, you should probably make a a point to be passionate about going with the local cheese. At least give it a shot, because that's where you'll experience the pride of the local people and that terroir of drinking a wine and and eating a cheese cheese. and and being served by people all who grew up in that same beautiful soil. Absolutely. We've been talking with Kathy Lyson. Her book is The Whole Fromage. Kathy, let's finish with you just explaining, here in the United States, if you want to put a cheese course together and you want to um, splice in some French cheeses, in a very, very basic and simple way, what are the five cheeses you'd put on the cheese course?
2: It's harder if you're going for specific cheeses. I would recommend going for types. So, right. um, like just you've types. got there, I w- yeah, I would go for a goat cheese, and mm-hmm. then I would probably um, get a soft cheese like a camembert or a brie. Mm-hmm. I would get a hard cheese like a gruyere, comte, something along those lines, and then you might want to get a stinky cheese just mm-hmm. uh, if for nothing more than a conversation starter. <laughs> yeah, and then of course a blue. But the best way, if you're feeling a little lost, is to really ask. If you're lucky enough to have a cheese shop nearby, um, you can go in and ask the cheesemongers. They'll be more than happy to help you find some appropriate choices.
0: Sounds like good advice. And if I can recap that and tell me if I've got it right, in very simple layman's terms, you'd have five different cheeses. You'd start with your goat, then you'd go to a camembert, then you'd go to a hard. You'd go with a stinky, and you'd finish off with a blue. Yes. Did I get it?
2: Yeah, and you don't have to have five. You could have anywhere from three to five.
0: Yeah, I like that. Depending
2: five. on your budget. <laughs> hey, yeah. all right. Yeah, five Ka- is nice.
0: <laughs> Kathy Lyson, author of The Whole Fromage. I guess all I can say is merci and bon appetit.
2: Bon appetit to you as well, Rick.
3: Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolner at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to the BBC News Bureau in New York and KUAT Tucson for their help this week. Our website team includes Andrew Wakeling and Kate Mulhern Graham, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. You'll find links to our guests plus audio archives and program extras in the radio section of our website, ricksteves.com. Join us again next week for an international Christmas party on Travel with Rick Steves.
0: Travel with Rick Steves is made possible in part by the European Union Delegation to the USA. Tips about traveling in Europe and information about the EU are available at euintheus.org. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, freshly updated this year, teaches the skills of smart travel. Along those same lines, Europe 101, History and Art for the Traveler is a must-read for anyone who appreciates Europe's rich history and great art. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.